it's okay. I'm praying for Jonas. I hope he feels better. And I'm praying for, there's a lot of people out sick. Uh, we went through the stomach thing, and that seems to be going around right now. So, uh, you know, you might just see who you can lend a gracious hand to and take him some ginger ale or something like that uh, this week and help him get through it together. We're going to be in Psalm 86 today. Psalm 86, I hope you'll, um, you'll turn there in your own Bible or grab a pew Bible in front of you. The words will be on the screen as well as we follow along here. Psalm 86. As you're turning there, I want to say that we all worship. We all worship something. Everybody, no one gets through this life without worshiping something. There's a man by the name of David Foster Wallace who gave, in 2005, gave a commencement address at Kenyon College. And shortly after he gave his commitment address, he, he committed suicide. So, but it's, it's a rather famous address for that reason. But there's a snippet that I think is compelling He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you might worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. You will feel that you never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure allure, and you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power to numb your own fear of losing it. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. You'll be afraid of of being made a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is their unconscious, their default settings. We are all hardwired to worship. And unless we have experienced divine reorientation at the hands of Jesus, this conversion of our whole being, we will be inclined to worship anything and everything but the one true and living God. So I invite you this morning again to go to Psalm 86. And in Psalm 86, we're going to see David, King David, worship the Lord. You shouldn't assume of David that his worship is going to be in a setting like this, that this poem comes out of some sort of a worship service where everybody's well-dressed and cleaned up and nobody's in imminent danger. David is going to worship the Lord in a time of desperate need. He's weak and humble, and he knows that there is nothing in him that can deliver him, perhaps from one of the caves he was dwelling in as he was trying to escape the threatening hand of Saul, King Saul, or maybe one of the Philistine kings that wanted his throat, or maybe his own son. We don't know exactly when it was that David penned this prayer, but nevertheless, David's life was full of tumult. It was constantly full of strivings and constantly finding himself in desperate need. The words of a prayer of David. That's all we've got to go by. If you look at the top of 86, it just says a prayer of David. Psalm 86 sits in book five of three books in the Psalms. Book three, excuse me, book three of five books in the Psalms. Book three is uh, Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And this is the only Psalm of David in this book. And then there are a couple in book four, and then there are a few more in book five. And so we saw book one and book two was mainly Psalms of David. And so it, it, we thought you, one could read along in the Psalms and think, okay, it's done in book one and book two. 
But then all of a sudden we see a, a psalm of David pop up here in book three. And so what's up with this? Why are we getting now a prayer from David? And I would suggest that in the flow of thought in the Psalms, remember, think the Psalms are an edited piece of work whereby an editor, perhaps maybe Ezra, brought together, uh, or Asaph is another, another good guess, uh, brought all of these poems and songs together, and they, in themes, almost like a hymnal. If you were to take the hymnal, the brown one that's in front of you right now, and flip through it, you would find all the Easter songs together. You would find all the Christmas hymns together. You would find songs about God as creator at the beginning. You would find songs about the atoning blood of Jesus grouped together. And so you can think of the Psalms almost in this way. And in book three, it shifts to looking forward to the coming Messiah, okay? Because God's people are, are facing exile and so forth. And so they're really, they're pleading. The theme of book three is pleading for God to rescue them. And the rescuer that they know together, that they have a common faith around, is this kind of nebulous idea of a Messiah, okay, that's been prophesied about coming through. They don't obviously have it as clear as we have it, but they know a Messiah is coming. And so I would suggest that in the flow of thought that this is a psalm that could have been prayed by David, yes, but then also by the David that was to come. And you, you see scripture, especially in the Old Testament, do this thing, like especially in Ezekiel 34, in linear thinking, Ezekiel 34 is after David. David's long gone, he's dead, okay? But Ezekiel speaks in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, David will be king over my people is the prophecy that he's making here. And so sometimes the scriptures in the Old Testament, they'll put David's name because this Messiah that was to come was coming from the line of David. He was going to be a king after the, after the line and lineage of David. And so it's talking about Jesus. And so I think that's what, ha what is happening in Psalm 86. That's why this prayer of David is popping up right here in the middle of all these messianic psalms. is because it's basically saying this is a prayer of the Messiah who is to come. Now, I actually think David prayed this prayer, though, as well. So it fits in both places. It was a prayer historically prayed by David. Let's read it. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, 
have helped me and comforted me. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. There are seven beautiful demands, beautiful demands that David makes of God in this prayer. And I want to pull those demands that David makes of God out of this psalm, of this prayer today, that we might apply them in our own prayer lives. And then I want to show you how it is that David came to have confidence to make demands of God. Okay? The first one is this. If you're taking notes, number one, listen to my prayer, David says. He directs God. Listen to my prayer. Look at verse 86, or 86 verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. And then verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. This is, this is something, you, if you read through the Psalms, you'll see David does this a lot. David wrote an entire book of divinely inspired song prayers. You would think that David knows that God will hear him if he prays. Like you, You'd think he, he wouldn't keep saying that over and over again. But still, he pleads with God to listen to him. Right out of the gate. Question for you. Do you ever ask God to hear your prayers? Or do you just assume that he will? Do you ask him to hear your prayers or do you just assume that he will? My two-year-old, Alex, she's really into having her nails painted right now and toes and fingers and she picks her own color and all that and she, she's just, you know, she's just magnificent when she does that. She's just, a be- in her mind, she's the most beautiful thing to ever walk the face of the earth as long as her nails are painted, okay? And I mean, I, I do like a dad does and I'm, I'm oftentimes busy with things, but when, it, when Alex gets her nails painted, you got to stop what you're doing, and you've got to notice, okay? Um, and if you don't, I, I, the other day, I, she got her nails painted. She came out, of the, uh, came out of the room where her mom was painting her nails, and she came out, and she kind of struck a pose. <laughs> and I didn't notice because I was doing something else. And so she, <clears throat> you know, like, women, you do this too. Like when you get a haircut or something, you <clears throat> struck another pose. And I still didn't notice. And she, so she came up on my lap, grabbed my face, said, Daddy, look. <laughs> and I stopped what I do, was doing immediately, and I said, that's so pretty. That's so pretty. That's so pretty. I was not going to get away from her. I was not going to fail to notice what she wanted me to notice. And in the same way, this is what David is doing. He's coming before his father. He knows that his father will appreciate what he has to say because of his confidence in God already, because of the relationship that exists between him. And he wants to make sure that God knows I'm right here. Look. Look at me. Dad, look at me. I need your attention. I need you to focus. Do you ever ask God to hear you in this way or do you just assume that he will. The ever-present help of God can make us prone to take God for granted. We hear, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it you, and quietly, maybe even subconsciously, we begin to presume that God exists to meet our needs. That kind of entitlement, though, robs God's promise of its power and empties our prayer life of its wonder. God Almighty 
the sovereign and infinite maker of heaven and earth, hears your prayers. Don't ever, don't ever take God's ear for granted. Know his holiness and know your sin. Know them well enough not to presume that he will listen to you, but for Jesus' sake, ask him to hear one more prayer. Listen to me, O Lord. He's crying out to God to incline his ear and then act in response. And just an observation, look down at verse 7. He says, give me your ear, incline my ear. Why? Because in the day of trouble, you will answer me. He knows, yet he still asks. He knows, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you will answer me. So there's kind of a dynamic at work here, where on the one hand, he's saying, please answer me, and a few lines later, he's saying, I know you're going to answer me. This is why I call on you, because I know that you will answer me. And this is the posture that we have. God does not have to listen to your prayer. He's not obligated to listen to your prayer. But at the same time, he's promised that he would. And so we must come to him as David came to him. Listen to my prayer. That's the first thing. That's the first prayer we can infuse into our own prayer lives. Second thing, save me and keep me. Save me and keep me. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Verse 2, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, then it says in verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for today, for to you do I cry all the day long. Save me and keep me. Save me and keep me. In the face of all his enemies, David looked to our God for protection and deliverance. He was often surrounded on every side, threatened in every way imaginable, but he found hope and confidence in his sovereign, unchanging Father in heaven. Save me and keep me. Save me and deliver me. For I am godly. Those words in verse 2, for I am godly, the translation into English can make that a little bit um, we can, we can get it the wrong way. It kind of sounds like he's saying here, preserve my life because I'm one of the righteous guys. That's not what David is saying. That's not the right way. What he is, what, that's not what he's saying. What we is saying here, what we have here, is a Hebrew word related to the term hased. When we talked about hased in the last psalm that we went through, and the word hased is, means steadfast love or loyal love or loving kindness. And it's the word that's used to describe God, to, in further detail, help us understand who God is. And I think what David is saying here is he's saying, preserve my life, for I am marked by your steadfast love. Preserve my life because you love me, and that love characterizes me, and that's why I'm crying out to you, would be kind of the more full understanding of what's going on. And then I think it's backed up by a parallel line in the next part of verse 2, save your servant who trusts in you. This is part of his poorness and his neediness. You see this? He's saying, I'm poor and I'm needy. I need you. You are my God. I am marked by your loving kindness, so save me. And I'm trusting you. And brothers and sisters, as pressed on all sides as David was, as threatened as his life was, we have an enemy far greater and far more fearful than David's enemies combined. He has planted his mercenaries at every turn, and we are helpless against his schemes without a warrior to fight for us. Here, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil our great adversary. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood as David did, 
but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You were saved, and you are being saved each day. Hear me on that. You were saved, justified, and you are now being kept and saved each and every day. You are being kept. That's what David said in verse 3. Show your gracious to me. Look at verse 3. It says, show your graciousness to me. And the, the language there is an ongoing way. Show your graciousness to me ongoingly could be a better way of saying that. So you've saved me. Now I need you to show that saving, gracious mercy to me in an ongoing way. It's a humbling thought. Here's a humbling thought. Every day you wake up still believing in Jesus as your Savior, still struggling to follow him. Every day that you have drive in your heart to follow Jesus as Lord, every time you feel inclined to fight against your sin, it's because God hasn't let you go. If God does not hold you fast, you would be lost. Each day should bring about a new, confident plea in our prayer life. God, you have saved me, and I need you to save me ongoingly. I, I, I recognize that the reason, the only reason I'm even praying to you right now is because you have sent your spirit to dwell within me, and you've taken out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And without you, I would be utterly and absolutely lost. Gone, drifting away. So keep me, keep me prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. I love the words of Jude chapter 1, only chapter in Jude, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us not take for granted that if you get to, the he you get to heaven, you die, you go to heaven, and you get in, it will not be because of how wonderful you are. It will not be because you obeyed well. It will be because Jesus saved you and kept you. Hell is here. You are here. God's hand is here. And so we pray that way. We pray that way. Save me and keep me. David prays that way. Third way. Third beautiful demand. Make my heart happy in you. Make my heart happy in you. Verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Gladden my soul. Gladden my soul. Humans were not created to be rescued, just to be rescued from sin, but to be flooded with joy in the rescuer. God did not create Adam and Eve 
just to rescue them. He created them to enjoy them and for them to enjoy him. Sin disrupted God's ultimate plan for you. It did not create it. Jesus is not only a get-out-of-jail Savior, but a get-into-eternal-joy Savior. God made you to demonstrate his worth by making you happy in him, not just placing you in heaven, but by giving you himself that you might enjoy your fellowship with him. Make my heart happy in you. God commands us to have that kind of joy in him. But any of us who have tried to put on joy like we put on a pair of pants, we know that doesn't work. Something supernatural has to happen in our hearts. And the only, and only supernatural things only happen when what? When who acts? God acts. Let me just encourage you. If you're in a job that you don't like, if you're a parent of small children and you're sick of dirty diapers, if your health is waning or you're just in a tired season, you're just grumpy, if in any of this, if you're feeling like, I'm so tired of this, let me encourage you to lock on to this prayer, verse 4, Psalm 86, and offer it up to the Lord. Gladden the soul of your servant. The remarkable thing about walking with God is this is the kind of thing that he does. He makes it so that even in the midst of our unpleasant circumstances that we don't really like, he can st we can start to feel joy in spite of everything that's going on around us. We can have our soul made glad by God. No, what, no matter what you're going through or how far away happiness feels from you, never settle for anything less than joy in the Christian life and then never assume you'll find it without asking God for it. Wrestle with God in this way. Gladden my soul, Lord Jesus. Make me happy in you. And you, you see, you'll see this as we go through the psalm. David is repetitious. He prays things over and over again, showing God how earnest he is and how intentional he is and how much he wants something. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid in dark seasons of the soul to cling to Psalm 86 verse 4 and say it to God over and over and over and over and over again. Gladden my soul, God. Gladden my soul, Lord Jesus. I know, God, that you are the one who can give me joy in you. I don't feel joy in this current place I'm in, but I know that you are good. I know that you are a promise-keeping God, and I know that you will make me glad, Lord Jesus. I will prevail because you live within me. Gladden the soul of your servant. And cling tight. Fourth. Fourth indicative, fourth beautiful demand of God David makes. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Skip down to verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Knowing the truth is not the end of God's plans for everything you learn about him. He wants to see the truth come alive in you. He wants you to know the truth, and then he wants you to walk in the truth, in your priorities, in your relationships, in your heart. A Christian is saved apart from our doing, but we are delivered into a life filled with doing. Doing good works, like Ephesians chapter 2 says, prepared specifically for us before we were even born. Hear the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. You figured out the right things. God revealed his knowledge to you in the right way to save you. Why? And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So teach me your ways that I may walk in them. Teach me your ways that I may walk in them. But the dots between what we know and what it means for our daily lives are, is not always clear. The dots between the one we love and the way that we should live can often be foggy and unclear at best. And as un-American as it may seem, God doesn't expect us to just figure it out all on our own. He wants us to ask him for wisdom. God, teach me your ways. And he wants to do the work himself by the Spirit through our working with him. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2. Fifth thing, also in verse 11, last line. I love this one. It's probably my favorite one. Unite my heart to fear your name. See it? Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. David is saying that I recognize there are aspects of who I am that aren't going to want to go along with the truth. Your truth's going to show me things. And then I'm going to see that those things mean things for my life. And then there's going to be deep, dark recesses of my soul that don't like the things. They don't like the things that you're showing me to do. That's why David is praying that his heart would come into unity with God, would come into unity to fear the name of the Lord. All those hidden recesses, all the places I keep hidden away, all the channels or the websites or whatever, I need you to unite my heart so that everything in me is going in the same direction, and that direction is in the direction that God wants me to go. Unite my heart to fear you, Lord, that I will do what you command of me. You know something I have found incredibly powerful in helping to unite my heart to fear the Lord? Singing. Singing is an incredibly beautiful gift that God has given his church and to his people to help their, their hearts stay closely tied to his. It's nearly impossible for me to stay distant from God when I'm singing to him. Right? Guys, you ever tried to sing to your wife before and not really mean it? She can see right through it, right? She knows when your heart isn't in it. It's impossible to sing to someone and not mean it for very long. St. Athanasius understood this. He, he had a, back in the fourth century, had a great statement in a letter to a young Christian that he wrote to in the faith. He said, I quote, it's a wonderful thing to sing to the Lord. Singing demands such concentration of a whole man's being that in doing it, his usual disharmony of mind and corresponding bodily confusion is resolved. Just as the notes of several flutes are brought by harmony to one effect, and he is thus no longer to be found thinking good or evil, or doing evil, nor desiring evil, though unable to achieve it. And it is in order that the melody may thus express our inner spiritual harmony, 
It is not from any mere desire for sweet music, but the outward expression of the inward harmony being obtained in the soul, because such harmonious recitation is in itself the index of a peaceful and well-ordered heart. It is a heart that has been united to fear God's name. That's just a lot of big theological $10 words to say this. When you sing about Jesus, it's hard not to like him. When you sing about Jesus, it's hard to not take seriously what you're singing. Now, I don't, no, don't get me wrong. Unbelievers can sing to Christ too, and their hearts can remain cold and dead in their chest. But God's people, when they sing about who, the one whom their heart loves, it brings unity. So for this very reason, practical point of application. Play music in your home. Not junk, not, there's all good music about Jesus in your home. Play it in your car with your kids, with your grandkids. Sing, even if you don't sing that well, sing. When you're in, when you're in worship, in, in, uh, in your personal time, and you just can't find harmony with Jesus, sing to him. It will concentrate your faculties in a way that nothing else can. Prone to wander. We sang it this morning. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. You can't sing those words for very long and not feel it taking place, the very action that you're singing about. Sing. Unite your heart. Our sinful hearts trend towards division, not unity. More and more of our inner selves resonate with God's heart, but rebel desires and impulses still linger as long as we live. To be a Christian, Romans 8.13, means that you are to be killing sin, which means if you are still drawing breath and you are a Christian, then you still have sin in you to be killed. You still have dark recesses to shine light upon. You have parts of you that do not fear God in a way that obeys him. Pray that that would not be so. Unite my heart to sing your praises. If we set our souls on cruise control, they do not move toward Jesus. If you set your soul on cruise control, if you're not fighting for the faith, you're drifting away from Christ. Six. Six. Demand of God, David makes. Give me your strength. Give me your strength. Go to verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Give your strength to your service. Some of us do not need to be convinced to work. We wake up early and tackle our to-do list and take on the world. We just forget to ask for help or to serve in anyone's strength but our own. That kind of effort may work for a while, but eventually we will be out of gas and left with small, short-lived returns. How do I know this? Because Psalm 127 says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to bed, eating the bread of anxious toil. In vain you work on your own. Along with our prayers for guidance and direction, we need physical and spiritual resources to walk and to work well. Nothing of any real 
lasting spiritual value happens in our own strength. It happens by the power of the Spirit working in us, motivating us along. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We need the strength of the Lord. Work hard, but never work under your own strength. Work in the strength that he supplies, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. And let him all, have all the glory he deserves for accomplishing means and ends in your life. God will not lend his own strength to selfish dreams, materialistic dreams, but he will supernaturally empower you to serve. He will give you the courage and resolve to lay down your life for others in the name of Jesus. And seventh thing, seventh asking and final asking of Jesus comes at verse 17. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This one's kind of, it's an interpretation. The seventh ask is reveal yourself through me. Reveal yourself to others through me. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The goal of all God's favor to us, every answered prayer, is not only your own hope and joy and strength, but also a statement to everyone else around you that watches you and whose life you're in. Lord, do these things for me, all these things that he said to God to do for him. Do these things for me, not just for my sake, but for the sake of those who are around you. David's saying, do it for the sake of my enemies. These guys who are trying to crush me, Let them see your mighty hand at work because you are saving me. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Peter echoes the same sentiment. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. We want our faith and our whole life to mean something to the watching world. We want unbelievers to know that God is the one and only God. Even more than that, we want them to know him and be saved. With our prayers, we ask God to take what he is doing for us and in us and do something dramatic through us in the hearts and minds of other people. So the sum total of all these things that we were asking, that we're boldly and beautifully petitioning God for to do in our lives, the sum total of those things is do these things in me, not for my own sake, but for the sake of your own glory, God, that others might see what is going on here with me and they would give glory and praise back to you that they might be saved. Now, these are lofty demands. These are lofty demands that David is making to God. Where are they rooted? Where does David get off making demands of God? How does he he have such confidence when he comes before God? Answer to that question. They are rooted in David's knowing of who his God is. They are rooted in the character of God himself. The character of God prompts David to pray all these things. Knowing who God is, the character of God himself, is what makes David pray like this. Look at verse 5. Go back to verse 5. 
He makes these demands, right? They're all blocked together. A lot of them are blocked together in those first four verses. And he says, why? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Then look at verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed. David praised these things and relates with God the way he does because he knows God is chesed, abounding in steadfast love, loving kindness. All the language here, it finds its root in Exodus chapter 34. I am poor and needy. I know that you are the God of the broken down and downtrodden. Verse 1, I'm poor and needy, but you're the God of the brokenhearted. There are murderous men after me, but I know you're not going to stand for this because you're good and forgiving. You are good and forgiving. I need your, your forgiveness. So I'm going to trust that you are not going to destroy me because of my failures. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. David knows well who his God is. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. This is David's God. And David is banking on God's absolute commitment to his own character, which flows out in concern and goodness towards his people. It manifests in a love that is unlike anything else that we will ever experience. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon your name. Isn't the God of Psalm 86 the God that you want in your life? Isn't this the God that you want? Do you want to be loved with almighty, abounding, steadfast love, not based on anything that you have done, but based only on the certainty of his goodness and his forgiveness? Is that the God that you want? Does that not sound like a great deal? Hear me. Perk up your ears, Christian, non-Christian alike. This God that David is talking about. What a deal. You bring nothing to the table. Desperateness, poor neediness. He brings loving kindness and forgiveness that's not rooted in anything that you are or you do. And he pours that loving kindness over the top of you if you will only do what? Call upon the name of the Lord in the way that David is calling upon the name of the Lord in Psalm 86, Romans 10, 13. Pastor Matt read it to begin the service. Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, preserved, kept. Look at verse 8. Not only is this God these things and characterizes things, but there is none like him. There's none like you among the gods, little g little g. Nor are there any works like this God's. Nothing else that we find to worship will love us with everlasting loving kindness and forgiveness like that of the one true and living God. Nothing else that our hearts find to desire have the proven track record by their works, by his works of graciousness and loving kindness and forgiveness. It's only found in David's God. Brothers and sisters, hearers in my hearing, it's only found in your God. 
Not only does David feel assured that he will be delivered from his current circumstances based upon the character of God, he is sure of future and ultimate deliverance. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. He, know, he, knows, he knows, based upon God's character, that he can deliver him from this current struggle, whatever it is that he's in. But ultimately, he knows this for sure, that, that relief will come not just in a temporal way, but in an eternal way. Look at verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All the nations you have made. Everyone will come. That's a statement of faith because in David's day and in our day, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case, does it? Doesn't really look like King Jesus is in control, does it? When David's hiding in a cave, think it feels like God's in control? When his son, his oldest son, his oldest son, you know what I'm talking about, his, his, his love, betrays him. Doesn't look like God's in much control, does it? When the nations rage and politicians go back and forth and men who are corrupt fill the governing offices and do things that none of us agree with, doesn't look like God's in charge much, does it? But David is taking in faith, this God of such character has made a promise. And since the God with loving kindness and steadfast love and has observed all the acts this God has brought about and how he saved his people and delivered his people from the beginning of time, he's observing this and then he's looking at the promise of God to bring a Messiah and to deliver the entire world and the promise that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that that is God. He can't see it right now, but because the God of such character, of such chesed, said it, David takes it on faith. And David only got to see pieces. We get such a, more, a clearer picture because Jesus has come. And ultimately, the end of the Bible in Revelation 5, we see what? That there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language surrounding the throne of God in heaven, worshiping God. And David is by faith saying, that's going to be the case because of who God is and because of what God has already done. That's going to come to pass. The Bible tells us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Everyone is going to encounter God. You can encounter him willingly and gladly and worship him, but you will encounter him. And in our context, in our culture, there are so many people who live as if the God that David is desperate for is a myth, and perhaps it even starts to creep into our own thinking sometimes, our own thinking as well. And so I would give you a final and eighth demand, a beautiful demand of God that that David is making here, that's not explicitly there, but it runs like an undercurrent underneath the whole psalm. And the eighth prayer, this beautiful eighth demand that David is bringing is this. It is a prayer of longing, a prayer of knowing that you don't ultimately belong here. It is a prayer of faith, a prayer for deliverance into eternal joy. It is the prayer of Revelation chapter 20, 22, verse 20, and it says this, Come, 
Lord Jesus, come. Come. Surely I am coming soon, says Jesus. And all God's people say with faith, amen. Let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. So quickly, the eight ways to enliven, enrich in our prayer life from Psalm 86. Number one, God, listen to my prayer. Answer me. Number two, save me and keep me. Number three, make my heart happy in you. Make me glad. Make my soul glad in you. Four, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Number five, unite my heart to fear your name. Number six, give me your strength. Turn and be gracious to me. Give me the strength, your servant. Number seven, reveal yourself through me. And number eight, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Let our hearts overflow, Lord, with desire for you. Revive the hearts of your people, Lord. I know, I know in this room, Lord, know my brothers and sisters, I, I just in conversations, Lord, they need, they, they, feel, they feel the chasm that exists between you and them. They feel dryness in their soul. They feel a need to talk to you and communicate with you effectively, Lord. And you've given us Psalm 86 as just a beautiful gift to make our prayer life overflowing again. And so, God, my prayer that I pray would be for your blessing, that you would prosper our every attempt to remember and celebrate your goodness and your forgiveness, that you would prosper each and every time we come to you, Lord, with intentions to commune with you, Lord, that you would meet us there. Hear our hearts, Lord. God, and that through that, you would prosper every attempt that we make to proclaim the gospel. that we would all find you to be good and forgiving and that we would communicate you as such to a world that needs it, needs you. Pray that the words of this psalm would transform our prayer lives, that we would be people whose hearts are gladdened because we call on you, people who have experienced your steadfast love because we come in the name of Jesus. Make our hearts desire you, God. Send your spirit, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. All right, let's just come forward, please. We continue to meditate on these precepts.